welcome to the Hublic Sphere. Hello and welcome to this special final episode of this season of the Hublic Sphere podcast. My name is Siobhan Callahan, and I'm a PhD student in the Trinity School of English and I'm one of a team of podcast makers who've been working together to bring you the Hublic Sphere podcast for just over a year. Rather than our usual conversation about modalities of power, I'm here today with my fellow podcast makers to reflect on a year of making the Hublic Sphere, how we started and what we've learned along the way. So our regular listeners probably are familiar already with who we are, but I will once again ask the team to introduce themselves. So um, once more with Feeling Gang. Hi, my name is Claire Moriarty and I am an Irish Research Council postdoctoral fellow in the School of Philosophy. Hello everyone, Don Seymour Kloss and I am a PhD in History at Trinity and I serve as the editor of this season of the Public Sphere. Hi all, I'm Elizabeth Foley and I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of Classics at Trinity College Dublin. Hello, I'm Lilith Acadia and last year I was lucky to be a co-fund fellow in the Trinity Long Room Hub. Hi, I'm Sahar Emad. Uh, I am a PhD candidate in the School of Law and I look at the right to freedom of religion. So I suppose, I mean, let's start at the beginning. Um, what most listeners won't know is that this podcast, perhaps like many great ideas of our time, began with a WhatsApp message. So I think, Sahar, it was you that first put it out into the ether, wasn't it? So it did really start with a WhatsApp message, Siobhan, you're right. Um, I was very inspired by a podcast I had been listening to for a number of years now, Secret Feminist Agenda, hosted by Hannah McGregor. I mean, I'm an avid podcast listener anyway, um, but I loved how this particular podcast sort of combined scholarship with easy listening, if you will, and really made feminist pedagogy and scholarship accessible for people um, who might not be from the academy. And it was also a new and innovative way to look at peer reviewing scholarship. And I was like, wow, that sounds incredible. And plus, of course, we were stuck in lockdown uh, once COVID hit. So we had a WhatsApp group that all of us were a part of, all the early career researchers at the Long Room Hub, and uh, just was like, hey, guys, let's do a podcast. And you all very kindly agreed to do it. And hence, another WhatsApp group was formed. <laughs> and we started discussing it. And that's kind of like effectively where it started. It started from wanting community and wanting to reach out to other people and being inspired by other people already doing this work. So yeah, because I suppose, I mean, I should have clarified at the start, it was kind of like, was it March or April of last year that this all kicked off? By this, I mean the podcast. But I suppose like why, I mean, I know I responded to the message because I worked in radio before and I was really interested. And I think like the Sahara is getting at like this marriage of the mediums, this idea of podcasting as an accessible way to share the work that we do in the Long Room Hub and to share research. I mean, why, why, did, why were others so keen to jump on the, the bandwagon? So I've been taking part and working for sort of philosophy charity called the Forum for Philosophy for a number of years. And the outcome of those sessions, which are usually free public philosophy events uh, with speakers from philosophy and other disciplines, had always become podcasts. So I had a little bit of a track record of producing the content for definitely not doing any of the difficult production work that Dawn does. Uh, but so for about four or five years, I'd already been contributing, let's say, to a humanities podcast. The idea of doing something here in the new research center I was working in was very appealing to me. I came in here not with any experience, but in a bit of an existential crisis. So whenever Sahar put out the message, I was physically separated from my research for a period of about two and a half months because of lockdown. And there was no sense of community. And I live outside of the city. So there was just nothing. It felt like this vast nothingness. 
And I jumped on it because I figured it was better to, to put yourself out there and try something new. And maybe I could still do this, this form of public outreach, which is something that I'm very passionate about in, in history and, and perhaps just be a part of a different kind of conversation or just any conversation during lockdown. And it turned into just months of intense learning of how to <laughs> do audio engineering and, and how to structure a show. And I mean, this group kind of became a, a very unexpected lifeline during lockdown. I, I quite honestly don't know that I would be half as sane now without it. So thank, thank you all for doing it and, and for taking a chance on, on this project. It's really amazing. Here, here. Yeah. For sure. I also think, Sahar, I think you do yourself a bit of a disservice by saying you you just sent a message. I remember thinking uh, when I saw your message of what a great project that that sounded. Um, it sounded so fun and enthusiastic as you as you totally evoke, but it also sounded like a really interesting way for disseminating some of the conversations we were already having in the hub, some of the conversations we were already having with each other, and some of the conversations we were having within our research. And I thought that this was a, a really great opportunity to think about how to, to communicate communicate with a different audience than, than we were used to. Like, obviously, I mean, it was it was fueled by wanting to do something new. And it was fueled by also a, like a touch of isolation and loneliness. But it was also just fueled by like, we do have these conversations amongst ourselves formally and informally at the hub. This is going to be like a mutual appreciation society, but I'm just so glad you all agreed to do it. I think there's something really interesting about the fact that it took us all being sent home and working remotely for us to think about a way to collate those conversations and have them and share them, I suppose, through the podcast. I know for me as well, it was a really, well, I said I was interested in podcasting as a medium. I was also like a way to keep connected during this really isolating time. And as I mean, I'm not the first to say it, but PhD research is at its best, often quite an isolating type of work. So I suppose then we called this project the Hublic Sphere. Like, what do we mean by the Hublic? What is this? Or is it just a pun? I think it started off as a pun and it morphed into something larger. In, in episode one, we had, well, we, I, I had this kind of crazy task of having to try and explain that for the first time, having to articulate what is a public and why. And I, I truly struggled with it. And then it, it all kind of started to come to focus very, very organically. The public sphere for us started off as a pun of building, of course, that we all worked in, but of the community that was there. So we did not all particularly know one another before lockdown that well. Of course, we may have passed in the hall. We may not have. But whenever we started talking about these ideas that linked us all together, we realized this was a very special kind of community, but it wasn't a community that we wanted to keep closed off. We wanted to create a third space. So in every episode, we move through segments, and they may not always be earmarked by different, you know, little musical clues or, or what have you. But we have an academic space, a public space, and then what we call the public space. And this is whenever, it was sorry, spheres. And this is whenever we move from what we would like to talk about academically to academics, for academics, by academics, what we think is going on in the public sphere and how we want to marry those two things and say that anyone who wants to learn can learn and they're welcome in this space. The public is not a building. The public is not a group of people who happen to be in that building. It is a sphere where everyone is welcome to learn. And that's really what we tried to create in this first season. Mm, I love that. Yeah. 
I also think it is a great pun and I'm very proud of us for having a punny title. I discovered through this title that I can't say sphere the way people expect to say it. I always say sphere. <laughs> so I only discovered from saying the name over and over again that I say it really weird. <laughs> But I did say this episode will be about what we learned along the way. So that was a beautiful piece of personal <laughs> reflection, Sahar. I love Sahar and the Saphir. Back into the public space, oh, space. I think that something lovely happened also organically with us doing this, this project in the way that it was structured. And that none of us come from the, the same type of humanities. None of us come from the same point of view. None of us even have really the same outreach goals, right? But it was a way for us to learn from one another. I never thought at the beginning of this project that a medieval historian, someone in law, someone in philosophy, someone in classics, someone in English lit, what all of this would have in common and just how much we could learn from one another. So I think that that's another really beautiful part of the public is that these boundaries, these magisteria of you know, if your history, if your law, they don't matter here, right? It's all one big place of learning. And we do it in such a way that you don't need an advanced degree or have a paywall or anything to, to block you from it. I think it's like one of the things we talked about and, and the very reason for choosing the podcast form of like the intimacy that it feeds as well and the intimacy with the learning experience because of, I think Sahari earlier on, you said that you used the word informality. The very nature of the podcast conversation, that privacy means that you can tune into a conversation about research that allows you further access, allows you to hear some of the more the nuances of those conversations. Well, I think the intimacy thing is particularly poignant for my episode, which was the Justice for Magdalene's one, where I think it was a really nice opportunity to give people who are interested in those kind of themes and that history a chance to listen to three of the main advocate academics. These people who have had hundreds of thousands of hours worth of conversations about Magdalene women, about the fight for sort of reparations and restorative justice. And I think it's a wonderful medium for allowing the listener to sit and listen to these people. I mean, I'm a blow in in that group, but to listen to, you know, three, maybe four people discuss something that they've been thinking about working on together for years and years. I think that's the kind of unique benefit of the, the podcast that it, it allows you this access to to the intimate space that Siobhan suggested. I think it's also interesting um, because unlike a video, the fact that a podcast can be listened to while doing other things and famously people do that, right? The fact that you can take this conversation into these very, not just a private conversation like Claire was talking about, but then take it into a very private sphere and and, 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 <laughs> and and bring it into that like inner life of yours I think that is what also adds to the intimacy like yes it's someone else's voice in your ear but it's where you're taking that voice with you everybody all over the world has talked about long walks during COVID and isolation like those were very often lonely walks right and quite intimate walks in a sense because you're by yourself and you're listening to someone else's voice and I think podcasting adds to that. Well, as a new mother and essentially, you know, carer at the moment, I can attest to the, the convenience and suitability of podcasts for listening to while you have caring responsibilities. Claire's point about the accessibility of the podcast while in these caring roles also touches on one of the core qualities of the podcast that I really appreciate. And that is that we unintentionally, I think, made it a feminist podcast in 
not only the topics that we chose to address, but also in how we created the podcast and how we've been interacting as a team. And I really appreciate how we've been able to maintain that and also allow it to grow, change how we see the power dynamics of the podcast. Yeah, I totally agree, Lilith. And I think that actually like probably leads really interestingly into why we chose the theme of our podcast, this idea that we've kind of been banging on about for the past well, year now in each of our episodes, which is modalities of power, that I do think it's interesting that we all found ourselves, we agreed on the on the theme pretty easily and unanimously because it was, we did all seem to be thinking about it at the same time at this time last year when the idea of being powerless kind of took on an almost cartoonish meaning, for want of a better word, in terms of the experience of being at home. I really loved that conversation when we all got on a Zoom call and we were tentatively sharing our research interests to see like where would the overlaps be and what could we share in common. It was a wonderful way not only to get to know you but also to envision where the podcast could lead. Lilith and Siobhan you're both absolutely right but I, I love how organically this theme came about. I think that also allowed for this unintentional, very feminist practice to happen, actually. I think because of how organically power came about, some of us address power quite explicitly in our research, but for others, we don't. I personally don't. You know, I I talk about it quite subtly, frankly speaking, in the work I do uh, on freedom of religion. And it was, I, I loved how we were talking, we were talking, and like Lilith said, it just, it was like a, you know, in cartoons when you have like an idea and the bulb goes above your head, that I, it really was, yeah, it was really like a teen moment where I felt like all of us at the same time had a light bulb go off on top of our heads. And I wish that I had like illustrative powers to be able to draw that or Photoshop, <laughs> Photoshop a big bulb going off on our heads because it really, it really felt like that. Listeners could now Google a picture of that image. Well, I presume Dawn is going to add one somehow in, uh, in post-production. Actually, Dawn, Dawn will create a hologram for listening. Well, for me, the topic was a little bit nerve-wracking because I have been, for the most part, working on stuff to do with 18th century mathematics. Since I moved to the hubs, so I was slightly struggling to think of how I'd incorporate it. I had originally, you know, some not terribly great idea about a reasonably esoteric episode about like the power of equations to impact humanities research in the 18th century. Something, something really not as, you know, I think important as, as the episode we ended up making. But yeah, I had... Important. Yes, but maybe it doesn't have the same urgency as a modality of power as the, the Magdalene Women issue yeah. did. But it's nice as a bit of an academic magpie. It was lovely to have worked with the Justice Magdalene's gang and to see that that would be a much better way to use the episode. How could you have chosen a more timely topic for your episode? Yeah, it was actually really hard to get Claire, Maeve and Catherine scheduled, obviously, because in addition to the mother and baby report coming out, which was something that obviously impacted their activism and their work a lot. Uh, they had just finished publishing a book. So between me being very heavily pregnant and them all being <laughs> at the, the book deadline end of, you know, this huge project, uh, it was kind of a miracle it happened when it did. And then I think we released the podcast episode the same week the report came out. I think I may have been overdue the baby as well at that point too. So <laughs> definitely a bit of a fortuitous set of circumstances coming together uh, and it was lovely to put out something that allowed people to have this other direction of insight into a load of issues addressed in that report from the point of view of people who, who had been involved in the activist end of it. This is something that 
happened again organically and I think is one of the most beautiful things that you just couldn't have planned it even if you wanted to every single episode that we released this season was timely it was something that was happening in real time that became a bigger issue and in a lot of cases it happened when we did not expect it to blow up in that way right so for instance we released episode two uh Claire's episode actually a bit early because we, we knew that there was some moving and shaking going on there. And we, we really wanted to put out a format where her guests were able to have their voices heard before all of this started getting highly politicized. Lilith's episode, of course, reflecting so wonderfully on, on the Capitol riots, January 6th. And then I put mine out what, back in September of last year, long before these riots began. And we were addressing the issue of white supremacy in, in medieval studies. And Siobhan's so beautifully and elegantly dealt with isolation in a way that I'm not sure is where we thought we were going to go when we started this playing process. It, just every single one of them hits in a very different way, I think, once they were released than they did when we initially were planning the episodes because these these world events mm. kind of kept unfolding around us in a way that felt like it was in a film you know and not necessarily a happy one but <laughs> it, it kind of showed you just how important these conversations were and how relevant they are i've never been a part of something that unfolded in that way where every single release felt like it was hitting some current event that that really truly mattered and i think that that shows just again how important the conversation is and above all how important it is that people from the humanities are part of it. You, you mentioned there Don the the people who are a part of it and it really brought to the fore for me throughout this whole process how much public outreach scholarship works on researchers giving up free time to do this because we Yes. It's unpaid work. It, it was done, I know, in my case, my episode was recorded outside of traditional office hours. A lot of the planning was done around um, other people's commitments. So when you see the end product of an outreach initiative, sometimes you don't see what exactly goes into that outreach initiative. And it was really eye-opening. And it made me so deeply appreciate other outreach projects that I know about to see the work that goes into it and how often that is unpaid how it's done around other commitments yeah absolutely I mean I couldn't agree more with Elizabeth on that I know I was so grateful to Dr Alison Waller who spoke on my episode and was so generous with her time and energy and then to to go back to what Dawn said as well I think the way that we all seem to align with what was happening in the world was a kind of a testament to how you can bring different fields so philosophers and law students and history students into the same room into the same project and produce something really interesting and produce a kind of a conversation that isn't just six separate conversations but actually seems to say something as a whole I know like say for my episode I've been interested in in Alison's work on rereading for a long time since my master's studies and somewhat actually similarly to Claire I struggled a little bit with the theme of power in my own research it didn't seem quite so obvious to me where that relevance would lie but then of course in the idea of that power comes in many forms and that at times of isolation power there's also acts of power things that we can do for ourselves which all of a sudden became really clear that that's what rereading was a type of way to participate in power I suppose and in, a, in a more private sense perhaps because we're friends now and we and I talk to you about this you guys know how isolated I feel sometimes in Ireland when because 
and in research spaces being very often the only person of color. And for me, thinking about what I wanted from, from my particular episode, it was it was a powerful decision for me to make for myself, but it was also an act of defiance almost that I will not have any white people in my episode. I just won't. And that was powerful as someone making the podcast, but it was also, I think, a powerful listening experience that you could have a podcast coming out of Ireland, which is obviously very white, and have a podcast from a research institute at, a, at one of the biggest universities in the country and not have a single white voice, you know, in your ears. I thought that was incredibly powerful. Anyone who knows the region knows how contentious things are between India and Pakistan. To have four feminists in a virtual room uh, from India and Pakistan talking about the the power of co- collaboration and the and the power of not just working together but valuing each other's work was beautiful in a sense. There were there were activists in my podcast who were not academics at all. And, you know, one of them was being heavily surveilled at the time by her uh, government, her particular government uh, for her activism on the ground. A month after, two months after it was released, another one of the activists started getting not just heavily surveilled, but got death threats, had to go uh, into hiding. And the fact that in the middle of all of this, I could get these women in, in a Zoom call to talk about their work and how much it means for them to keep doing the work and then to have these international conversations, one, blew my mind, but two, also really moved me. I remember multi- getting teary multiple times during the conversation mm-hmm. and I absolutely sobbed afterwards because I just felt so privileged to be able to to have this conversation in the space I was having. And I'm also actually, I know I shouldn't have to say this to my white friends, but I'm actually very grateful to you guys for letting me run with this idea of being like, no, I don't want to hear anybody, any any of you (laughs) or have anybody else. And it's just going to be me and my people. And, and, and yeah, like I was, I was quite grateful that you guys let me run with it the way, uh, the way I did. So thank you just offer something much more mundane after the kind of beautiful and deep things Sahara said I feel like in academic communities we've had a lot of conversations about how COVID has allowed us to reconceive of conference travel and ways of participating in not academic networking per se but academic get-togethers and sort of congregations of various kind and I think it's nice that in a way very loosely related to what Sahara has been saying that the same kind of technology or new ways of engaging has allowed academics who are interested in doing the public facing stuff or the, the outreach kind of stuff to use the same set of tools to facilitate public conversations that are you know of value to to people to hear. That's also been a little bit of a subtitle of our season I think though we kind of dance around it a little bit, but we really are talking about the participation of power just as much as we're talking about power itself. And that's something that that I think really comes out in, in absolutely every episode, whether it's getting on a, a marching line or rereading a book, it's, it's always there. And I think that that's something that I, I remember very vividly, like panicking a little whenever I said it in the very first recording session of, no matter what you're into, get out and participate, join the line, do do whatever it is. And again, that hits quite differently now, but I think I believe it more than I did even when I said it then. And I, I really, really hope that that's something that the listeners take away from this season that we've done. And I think that's something that I have learned over the course of not just recording them, but also editing this season has been whatever it is, you have to participate. You have to stand for something. 
And I'm just, I feel so privileged to share that message with whoever happens across our show. It's, it's just been so wonderful. It's my favorite bit of the, of episode two is the kind of call to academics to, to get involved in, in courses and to use skills they have often publicly funded, you know, training to try and assist in various kinds of liberation project if they can. I mean, I definitely thought as someone who has kind of a very niche expertise, like what value could I possibly bring to any liberation projects? But even, you know, for example, in my case, it was, you know, correcting transcripts of women describing their abuse in Irish institutions. I have an Irish ear. I can hear a lot of different accents. And, you know, as, as compared with somebody whose job is to do transcriptions, I'll be able to correct, you know, mishearings or bits that they haven't done. It's got, you know, it's got nothing to do with maths or logic or any of that kind of thing but it was something that I was able to do yeah like I mean it's it's less less political perhaps than than Don and Claire's points but my my personal favorite part of, of episode three is where Alison provides a kind of framework for if you want to reread a childhood book for someone who's you know their children's books are locked away in the attic and they've never thought about them before children's books aren't for adults that we provide kind of a roadmap for like how you might start your own project how like how you might build a community of rereaders how you might engage with that book in your own way in a way that I think as a children's literature researcher I take for granted that children's books and rereading books from Mm -hmm. my youth are like a regular part of my day but for many people it's something they almost feel slightly ashamed of so I agree I think there's that, that kind of sense of participation has been such a lovely thread that's gone through each of the episodes I actually, that was my favorite part of your episode as well, Siobhan. Um, And we took that participation actually outside, didn't we? Like actively, because right after your episode came out, we, you know, coined the hashtag Rereading December and encouraged people on Twitter to post about and tweet about books that they're rereading. And it was uh, without it becoming a nostalgia fest, but it really was a, a means of it's cold, we're cocooning, we're in isolation. Where do we find comfort? Where can we seek it out? And rereading books from our childhood was that. I thought, one, it was a brilliant way to get our audience involved in this participation, reclaiming that power of being like, no, you're alone, but you have some control over it, over what you do in this time and space. And I loved how the challenge to not look back nostalgically was so timely. And even that connects to these themes of white supremacy that we talked about in other episodes, because it was such an important moment for thinking about the new world ahead post-COVID, hopefully there is such a thing, and how we can look back at the old world not nostalgically, but to reframe our positions relative to history, relative to power, relative to reading the present. I loved it. So I suppose there, I mean, there was also the technical aspect of things, right? Which is perhaps when you're going into a project like this and you say, let's make a podcast and you all pause and go, but how? Um, (laughs) Kind of our glorious leader. So Dawn, you, I mean, you really stepped up to the plate here. I think we can all agree if if we're, if we're talking about what we're grateful for, I mean, you really stood up to the challenge of, of what it meant to actually make a podcast. Three cheers for Dawn. Yeah, <laughs> we, we would not have been able to move forward at all if it was if it weren't for Dawn. Yeah, it was an abstract idea which she made tangible. So, Dawn, you are our queen. Not only for all the editing, but also jumping in and being our guinea pig for doing the first episode. And on such a challenging topic, it wasn't even an easy project to take on. And you just jumped right in while also learning the editing I can't even imagine gosh I feel like I just won an Oscar you guys Um, (laughs) I'd like to thank the academia (laughs) (laughs) yes I'd like to thank academia for shutting down Um, 
But yeah, I mean, I mean, Dobby can sit here. I mean, obviously, we can sit here and sing your praises all day, the live long day. But I mean, <laughs> in terms of like your own experience of editing, like what did you find the most interesting? Did you find your approach changed over the time of doing that? What I said at the beginning stands. This this came as a sense of I felt rudderless. And this was the way of reclaiming my own power. I, I didn't know what to do. I just knew this project sounded amazing. I've always been just head over heels in love with public outreach. And this this was the only way I could see moving forward and I, I needed something to grab onto. So I just went headfirst into everything. I think I spent just hours and hours and hours on YouTube trying to learn like what is the, the best way to do this. And, and without spending a bunch of time talking about what programs I use, I use entirely free software, by the way. I'm not lining the pockets of anybody. Um, I happened to run a Mac, so I used the free software that came on my Mac. I did not purchase any additional plugins. So if you want to do this, it really is a full grassroots, no extra purchasing kind of thing. But what I've learned over the course of, of editing this, and I think the most interesting thing, has been I did not realize how much of a feminist act and how much you have to get out of your own head whenever you sit down to edit an episode. I found myself deeply concerned and listening to things about four seconds at a time because I'm so hyper aware and try to learn each person's vocal pattern when we sit down because I don't want to change the way that you speak. I want that representation to be as authentic as possible. And I realize authentic is not a great word, but it works in this context. That's that's so deeply important. If you have a, a certain thing in your voice, if you have a certain song in your voice, that needs to stay there. And the way that you want to express yourself needs to stay there. And I thought you you put such a high premium on the collaboration of you, of making sure that you include it on every detail, not only the host of the podcast, but also our guests. So I think a really important part of our podcast for all of us was that we gave our guests the opportunity to review if, if they wanted it. And the way that you were able to integrate your editing and your time and what you had to do with also making sure that you weren't doing anything that, that no one didn't want done. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's something behind the scenes that perhaps gets completely lost. I don't know that we've ever said it outside of our own group before. But everything that we do is a democratic process. So the, the episode gets recorded. I do one cut of it. That gets sent out to the team. And they actually get to weigh in on what has happened on it as far as the cuts, moving things here or there. We do try to do a minimal amount of, of moving things from one part of the conversation to another. Because again, that's not the way that it should be represented because it's not the way the conversation happened. We want to invite you in and have a conversation with you. We're not here to lecture you. And I try to edit in that way. I, I want it to be like you're sitting at the table with whoever you're having the, the episode uh, on. So, so yeah, I think that it's massively important that this is a democratic process the whole way through and that the guests and the, the actual contributor ultimately have say beyond, beyond what I do. I think there was a nice balance as well in the organizing from all of our point of view of democracy and then trust. So one of the really nice feminist aspects of the way we did things is that when it all got a bit too much for me, when I had a really tiny baby and had to step back, first of all, that everyone was so supportive of that and that I was allowed to just kind of drop out, but still be contacted about really important things. For me, it was just so lovely to have worked together in such a close way that uh, sort of, I don't know, this huge sense of, ethical and political trust had been built up between us as a 
as a community in a way that I felt it was very easy for me to say, oh, let me step back. And I completely know that, you know, whatever decisions you reach as a group would be the one that I would be happy to support anyway. I mean, what helped us get through that this kind of time-consuming nature of the podcast, I think, is to go back to kind of what Claire and others were saying about the fact that we did build a really lovely community between the six of us. But it was also kind of we hoped to build something, I think, a larger community that kind of sat outside of our team, um, a way of kind of keeping connected during this time apart. So, I mean, I mean, do we think we achieved that? I suppose now we're getting to the hard, hard brass of it. I think we achieved it. I- I think as scholars and particularly those of us still doing PhDs, like we're, we're taught to not be very sure of ourselves almost in a sense, right? Like, yes, we're producing a scholarship, but you know, and we should be so, so sure of the, of the work we're putting out, but like doubt it and, and be concerned about whether it's actually proving what you're setting out to prove. I think we should be very proud of the fact that we actually achieved what we sought out to achieve. I do think we built a community. I think, first of all, I think there's layers to the community. I think the first community that we built was amongst ourselves. I have absolutely no no qualms in admitting that I am like five friends richer at the end of this than I was at the start. Like big life changes. Claire had a baby. I got engaged. And when I was making my wedding list, I remember when I mentioned, you know, you all being there, Siobhan was like, oh, what? And no. I, was like, well, I was like, well, obviously, I mean, I can't <laughs> imagine now getting married without all of you being there, you know? So I oh. think that's a testament to um, the fact that we built this community uh, amongst ourselves. Something that is quite significant about the community aspect of it is that our project is also a movable community, if that's the right word, that we're finished now with it. And but. The podcast itself, The Public Sphere, will stay on for a second season with a new team of early career researchers based in The Hub. But I think that was a brilliant idea of ours to have this, what will hopefully end up being an institution in and of itself, that can create a community. Next season, season two, will be done by a whole host of of new voices, which is a wonderful part of that. They will have the opportunities that we have, and I'm excited to hear what they do with it. Everything goes back to that layer of community comment that you made, Sahar, that I really, really love. So yes, we we had our first layer here. We have our layer with our own institution, but we also know that this podcast has gone out and lived many lives already while it was happening. It's been listened to in classrooms. It's been listened to all over the world. And I think that there's something really, really beautiful about that. But I also think one of the aspects of community that perhaps we haven't touched on too much is the overlap of the episodes themselves and how many different people are maybe entering these conversations because of that accessibility. So for instance, thinking back to you know episode one, which was the, the Friends of Medieval Dublin and the, the marches in the 1970s, and then moving into episode five, which was Lilith's conversa- beautiful conversation of citizenship and participation and power and what happens whenever all of these things kind of get jumbled up, there there were aspects of those conversations that I never thought would overlap. And it ended up opening a space where medievalists that I know started asking questions about citizenship in a way that they hadn't before. So there are these other layered communities kind of being built on these inter or multidisciplinary conversations, however you choose to frame that. And I think that's such an important thing, part of, of what we've done. And it, again, like goes back to that organic nature of 
how all of this came together, but it really just springs from what made us tick, what we were excited about, what we felt like we needed to feature. And whenever you have that raw energy pulsing through everything that you do, I think that it's impossible for it not to achieve something. And I'm just so proud of that layered community and all of those interconnections that have happened throughout the episodes. And I'd be really, really curious to hear how many people have stepped outside of their comfort zone because of some of these conversations. I think sometimes we can think as people involved in academia, that students should only be consuming, you know, academic content in journal articles or in books. And I think it's really mistaken, again, to forget that students have lives beyond the classroom and that it may be really of, of benefit to them to have something they listen to on the bus home, something that is a bit more lighthearted, something that shows them a different side of how something they're interested in works. So as well as, I think, focusing on accessibility and thinking about the public, I also think there's a really important sense of like retooling education that, that can come from, from podcasting. So uh, certainly for me, uh, I kept in mind that it might be something that students might want to listen to uh, as opposed to only having to come at such a topic that, you know, the activism around the Magdalene women, the Magdalene women themselves. So much of this work has been done through conversations rather than through publishing and that kind of stuff. So I feel like it's very true to the topic as well. Yeah. And I mean, was one of the most exciting points was it episode two was it your episode Claire that we found out that a a master's class had actually listened to it um yeah am I right in saying it was episode two yeah it was episode two yeah like we we know that they were used in classrooms at at different levels both at undergrad and a postgrad level we've talked a lot about the positive aspects not only of our podcast but also the medium of podcasts did anyone have any difficulties or reservations or see any difficulties with it we put out a call for questions right and one of the questions did ask about exactly that about whether we faced any challenges and problems and it's we we can talk for hours about what a rosy picture and what it all was and how you know what fun but it was hard it was like Dawn's talked about some of the challenges she faced as editor, but it was also hard otherwise. But one of the challenges I faced when recording was knowing when to get them to keep quiet. (laughs) Your guests can talk a lot, especially if they're academics. We are famously people who like the sound of our own voice. It was long. These conversations were so long and my heart went out to Dawn because she'd have to edit them. But that was reining in the conversation keeping it on track, not allowing anyone to get on their soapbox and go on a rant for half an hour. That was very hard for me. I found that very, very challenging. And I suppose, I mean, related to that, like another question we got in was in a similar vein, is there anything that you thought was difficult that you w- would have been easy or or vice versa? I made the mistake of having five guests. I mean, <laughs> I, I wouldn't have sacrificed any of them. But <laughs> so reigning in five different people uh, without video on our recording call was quite a challenge. But what I anticipated would be difficult is scheduling a time because all five guests were in different time zones from Hong Kong to Texas and Europe. And I just thought, oh, this is impossible. But they were so enthusiastic and willing to change around their schedules. It was amazing. These professionals, academics, activists are just so generous with their time. And really remarkable. So there were also points where I thought, oh, this is going to be such a pain. And then it was really affirming. That's something that's quite beautiful about how this came together as well. 
this is a podcast that's made in the trenches, right? We don't have big fancy equipment. We don't have all of these amazing resources behind us. And all of these people are very generously volunteering their time, but so are we. And I think that perhaps it is that community of we are all doing it for the same reason, because we feel like these conversations are so important and they need to be out there. So I I wonder if that's part of why our guests were half as enthusiastic as they were, because this didn't feel like a canned experience the way maybe it can on some of these larger programs. We are quite lucky, though, that we did have institutional support from the hub. And I can't help but think that you know, while you are right, we were sort of doing it in the trenches, we did have that overarching institutional support, which I think really helped us in many ways. We were also able to take advantage of their audience that's already there, you know, their Facebook page that they could share and advertise our episodes on, their Twitter account that they could retweet us. And so we we were quite lucky that we could tap into the institutional support. Yeah, I mean, I think that really, that actually really relates really nicely to a really good question that we got in from a master's student um, who wrote to us saying, I'm currently doing a master's in the humanities and I find podcasts a brilliant and accessible tool of learning. I often find readings can be incredibly difficult and draining at times. That said, my question to you is how can we encourage universities and higher education facilities to make media such as podcasts, documentaries, etc., used more effectively in the learning space and or classroom? So, I mean, that's a great question. How can we do that? Some parts of the world are doing it better than others. I think North American universities and academia is doing this better than European ones. And it's just a fact. I was a very recent entrant into the Twitter world. And one of the first things I saw when I did was a lot of the podcasts that I listened to had communities of students on Twitter that were listening to those podcasts and were using them in class and had hashtags for specific classrooms that they were listening it in so that everybody could engage in the conversation and other other students could you know go onto a hashtag and see what all their classmates were talking about when listening to podcasts I thought that was brilliant right and I do think that's an untapped I think this question is brilliant because I do think there is untapped potential Uh, when it comes to this we did see during COVID when asynchronous teaching started because of going online we did see an increase in different teachers in fact um, I had a job interview but one of the questions in it was about this uh, because a lot of teachers were now starting to give assignments that included making podcasts videos because of everything being online and students needing these accessible tools to be able to learn in the absence of libraries, for example, and choppy internet connections where they couldn't be live for video classes and stuff. And so there is untapped potential. I personally don't have a straight answer of how we can do it, but I do think we should learn from other places doing it well. I think the fact that Secret Feminist Agenda inspired me, one of the reasons I touched on it at the start was, well, because it revol- it does revolutionize peer review and scholarship you know it is a is a podcast it's the first podcast to be reviewed by a, a university publication by a journal and that's quite radical in 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 changing pedagogy really you know and that's what that was why it inspired me so i think there's a lot to learn from existing avenues like that yeah i think that anyone who's in the position of being an educator has a responsibility to look at these other media of dissemination. And that's not to to tell people who are already overworked that they should do more work at all, but it is to be aware that the, not the only sources that you can give your students 
our journal articles that there is a significant amount of really good research gone into podcasts that just don't come through the same funnels of academic publishing. Becoming aware of that and also making sure that we listen to it ourselves and we listen to the episodes that we don't just, you know, blindly put anything that sounds remotely like it relates to it on on a reading list is important. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think, yeah, I was about to say something, I was thinking something similar, which is it's a simple way, but to just support them ourselves, like in our own syllabi and to like share them with students, whether you're someone who's making a syllabus or if you're someone who's in a tutorial setting to like encourage people in their own time. I think that's a a small but significant way of of encouraging this as a a way of learning. You can give a podcast five stars or four stars or something on, on iTunes. And I was actually thinking about that the other day of like how I've never done that <laughs> for for the for the podcasts that I've listened to that intersect with with academic topics. I I have actually never given a review and that's something that I'm absolutely going to do in the future. Yeah, I literally I began doing it after my own podcast episode when I realized how important the feedback was, how much you kind of really put this thing out into the world and you're really interested in constructive, significant feedback. So, yeah, I'm now a five star reviewer podcasts tend to fall in an area and forgive me I'm gonna like mildly go into dress history for a second of a debate between craft (laughs) and art where if something is a craft it's lesser but if it's art it is more and I feel like we do that very much in the different forms of media particularly when it comes to education right whenever you're learning to teach for the first time you you have to be so aware of the different types of learning yet when you become a teacher you really only hone in on the written word for some reason by and large i'm not saying everyone does this but it's important i think to to really force the issue even if you're just a student of normalizing these different outputs right if we're normalizing that the podcast is something out there and it should be at the same level and moved out of that craft category and into the same place as art. Because I think that we have just as important things to say, we're just doing it in a different form. And that in a way is making it even more accessible to those who maybe don't learn the best or or retain the best by reading. So I think that it's a lovely way to acknowledge different forms of learning as well. Can I ask Lilith at this point, you are the most experienced teacher out of us. How do you see tools like podcasts being employed in in the classroom? Well, I can speak for myself and say, just as you have been inspired to listen to podcasts differently, respond to podcasts differently after producing your own, this has been a really transformative experience for me. I'm going to be teaching oral training next year for the first time. And I'm gonna ask my students to make an academic podcast. Actually, I'm thinking of starting the semester with Siobhan's episode and having them reread um, as a way of introducing the academic podcast and the interview form and then have the final project be a podcast. So it's influencing not only how I'm seeing the materials that we can use as reading material, background pedagogy, but also the types of activities we can ask students to produce to expand how they think of producing knowledge. I'm not sure how things are in Ireland, but definitely In Taiwan right now, with the transitions to online learning for large classes, we are talking about new pedagogies and new media. And I'm hoping that this is opening up a new era of using new media in the classroom. That is so cool. So another really lovely question that we got in, and perhaps a good question to be our penultimate question for 
this episode is how has listening to each other's episodes changed how you see power in your own work? It's a big one. I, I think for me personally, if I may stick my oar in, um, I think it's with the idea of power and participation, thinking about, say, if I'm, I'm a literary scholar and thinking about books as objects in our own lives, and particularly in children's literature studies, we do think about our reader, or I should say the, the implied reader, the idea of this child who, it has made me think a lot about participatory reading and that as an act of power. I love this question. I love that this question has about 12 different layers to it all at once. But looking at my own work, I I have been keenly aware of voice and something that has happened in, in the pandemic and in my own work has been reconciling that the person and the scholar that I was at the start of this project is not the person or the scholar that I am now. And how do those two voices compete or, or find harmony in, in one space? And I think that that's something that the podcast has actually helped with. So listening to not only all of your wonderful voices over the course of the season, but also all of your guests, it has really taught me that I think an exercise that we need to do more often that we don't, and I'm going to pull a really terrible line from old theater training and turn your mirror inward, Gertrude, um, check yourself at the door, right? So it's not about what you bring to the table all the time. Sometimes it is absolutely about what you are just there to learn, what you are there to bring out in others, what you are there to support. And that has been such a wonderful, and like, I, I must sound like an egomaniac, but such a wonderful humbling experience of stepping back and realizing just how much space or how much power you do take up whenever you are forced to, to be silent for a moment and listen to the voices of others. And it has been the most enriching experience. And I, I don't know if any of you have, have felt that it, it may be something that came from the, the solitary act of, of being like the editor in the cave, but I've, I've really, really loved learning from you all in this, this very raw way and, and realizing that maybe this power that I, I thought I didn't have. It was just an act of learning how to claim it and how to voice it in a productive way. I, I love that, Dawn. I think for me, so this is this is a bit of a, not that all the other things have not been personal reflections, but I suppose this is also a bit of a personal reflection in that when we started the idea of the podcast, right? Like well before even they were recorded, I was to say in a funk with my research would be an understatement, right? Like I was so put off by academia. It, I, so, so just hateful <laughs> of academia and of research and of structured research um, of the institution of everything. And I was definitely at a point where I was thinking there is absolutely no point to this kind of research. I love teaching and I need to find a way to enter the classroom but this research can go for all I care I I'm, I'm so done with it and I also was wanting to wade much more and sort of go back to my legal roots and you know try to go back to a soft a activism then we started planning all of this then the podcast episodes started coming out and the thing that I was not expecting was to suddenly see value in research again and to suddenly see power in, in research again. I listened to my episode was what the fourth episode. And so I had three episodes to listen to before that. 
um, and then two that came after. And in each one, particularly some of the, the research heavy ones, so I'm thinking particularly of Elizabeth's episode, I'm thinking Dawn's episode here, um, and even Siobhan's episode, They're, they made me see the value in sitting down with a textbook and finding theory important and interesting again. Uh, and made me see value in the theory that I am working with again. Yes, I was able to reclaim power for myself, like, like you said, Don, but I was able to reclaim power in my own research. And this might sound like waffling to someone who's not in academia, but for those of us in it, that's such an incredibly powerful moment. I was like, well, there's a, a, not only is my work important, but I should probably stick with it. <laughs> and that was... Uh, that was cool. That was very, very cool for me. In exact opposite to Sahar, as you <laughs> found this a <laughs> really redeeming moment for your research, I found it really redeeming for a lost sense of activism. And in listening to the episodes, it was also a reminder to actually embrace interdisciplinarity. And that's an ideal of the hub and an ideal, of course, I've written in all my statement of purposes, but not something that I'd truly embraced until listening to how the different episodes resonated with themes. So I was reminded, yes, it is okay to be activist and academic, and it is okay to be interdisciplinary. And I have followed through with that in the work that I've been doing subsequently as a teacher, as a writer. And it really was because of being part of this podcast. I think that's something that really rang through in several episodes, that interdisciplinarity is not just, it's not just across disciplines in academia, but it's also in and out of academia. It's also through disciplines that have homes in other sectors of, of the world, mm. of other sectors of industry. And I think that, that that's such a, a much more richer way of thinking about interdisciplinarity. I think it's easy to get caught in the idea that interdisciplinarity is, you know, sociological theory applied to data sets from, you know, 500 years ago or something like that. But it, it can also be beyond the boundaries of third level institutions. I think rethinking interdisciplinarity and really exploring what that means was an aspiration that we had for this process. And I know that another one that we had and we were unified in, in feeling quite strongly about it was that it would continue and that it would be taken over by another team. Did we have any other aspirations that we that have been fulfilled or that we hope to fulfill? My aspiration would be that, that more people consider public facing work to be part of their graduate training, to be part of postdoctoral training, to be part of what academics do. I think obviously there's the cliche of the ivory tower, but People do important and interesting work in academia that should be shared. A lot of it is publicly funded. So there's a sort of moral obligation as well to try and put some information and difficult questions to the, the public and to sort of more organized power sometimes. As the women from Justice for Magdalene's were saying at the end of my episode, uh, you often don't think you have much to contribute based on the sort of esoteric nature of your training. But uh, if anything, this podcast has shown just how many experts are also activists and sort of passionate community improvers. An aspiration that was also an inspiration was, as Sahar mentioned, the challenging peer review as a concept, as a form, the way it's done in written work, and imagining how you can peer review a podcast. 
not only uh, journal peer reviewing, but also other podcasts, our listeners. And we've talked about this throughout the time that we've been making the public sphere, of course, never finding a satisfactory answer or method. And I think that one of the aspirations we share is to continue that conversation, not only for podcasting, but also what its implications are for peer review as a part of the academic knowledge production process. And also part of its implications for the medium of podcasting, because the last thing we want to do is create a situation that ends up kind of gatekeeping Mm. public dissemination and a dissemination that is free and possible for kind of, as we were saying earlier, anyone who can attain the skills and who has the the minimal Mm. technological devices to do it. So do we think that we will continue podcasting then either together or what what do you guys think? I hope so. I have a few ideas up my sleeve and maybe less academically focused perhaps, though I don't know. Just to go back to Lilith's point about peer review and what Liz was saying as well, I think one of, it's a hark back to a different question, but I think an important one, one of the challenges I I think that I learned along the way anyway, and I think the rest of us maybe perhaps as well, is like acknowledging and accepting what we as a team couldn't answer in our year of work. Like, um, I think I really hope, I'm really hopeful for particularly season two or my, our own collective or individual workers podcast to like continue to engage with this question of what does it look like to have a peer review process for podcasting that retains the accessibility of podcasting is something I really hope for the future of, of all of our collective podcast careers. Doing this podcast and the conversation of peer review and scholarship inspired me to apply for a public scholarship fellowship, Sacred Rights, which is run out of Northeastern University and it's funded by the Henry Luce Foundation. I was accepted to do it Woo-hoo. and I've just recently started and it's Woo. so cool. Yeah, but I think that the main thing that I'm taking away from it and I even, like I think I mentioned it in the first meeting we had together was, uh, with with the other with the rest of the cohort of the fellowship is I want to learn how to make this a sustainable form of scholarship right like yes. um, we weren't able to Siobhan's right we weren't able to answer the question of peer review and how do we what are the practicalities and the technicalities of of, of getting a journal on board how do we get editors involved um, who will do the peer review what will it look like we didn't have any answers to those questions and from this project which is yes a lone one I'm doing it on my own but I hope to get the tools that I can not only impart to you guys as as a group a friend group but whatever other project I I, you know embark on post PhD or any other podcasts we do even with students I'd hope to be able to impart that knowledge to make that easier because that it is hard we weren't able to answer those questions because it was there were hard questions (laughs) And Dawn, please tell us that your editing brilliance is going to go to good use after this. Uh, I'd love to, to say I know, but um, I don't know. I'm really, really hopeful and I'm not going to, to give up on this. I still am completely and utterly motivated and moved by public outreach. It is, it is my passion. It is everything that I want to do. So yeah, I definitely want to continue to develop a few more projects in the pipeline, hopefully with your lovely voices involved. And I don't necessarily even feel the need to stay in my own field of medieval studies anymore. Like I think that there's a real value in stepping out of your box and having conversations with people and about people, places, and ideas when they need to happen, which sounds a bit journalistic, but it's it's true. It's about realizing that you may have a platform or you may have a privilege that someone else could really, really use. And I really want to 
to fully step into that in whatever form that I can. I didn't think of it earlier, but actually one of the big challenges I think we faced was making it accessible, uh, not in academia accessible, but like capital A accessible. We don't have transcripts yet. And that's a failing on our part, I feel like, and we should acknowledge and be honest about that. Uh, we haven't been able to make the podcast as accessible as possible for for audiences who might have any disabilities. And Yes, we can we can acknowledge that it's because we don't have it takes so much time. Transcription is is yes. a is a whole whole job in itself. And we don't have a transcript, someone who can do the transcribing for us. And we don't have the time to do it ourselves. But we can acknowledge that it's because of those, you know, resources we don't have, but also acknowledge that we failed in in in, in providing them. And I think that was a challenge we haven't been able to overcome. In the same vein, just of, of written documents that go along with what we do, something that we did, I think, succeed with was every episode did produce written show notes, which then could be utilized if they needed to be uh, transcribed into another language. Or I think that that document, which sometimes like we definitely always say that it's there, but I don't know how many people take the time to, to go back and read them, but they are there with links to other resources. So maybe things that we don't necessarily get to talk about in great detail on the episode, there there's always another set of resources in those written documents that are accessible to anyone who wants having a platform that that enables closed captions and I think we will get there and I think that's an important real that's an important reflection that we have that in thinking about accessibility we did fail on that front for anyone who's hearing impaired that you know our dissemination is not possible for them but I think hopefully we'll fix that in in the future with with platforms stay tuned stay tuned and also it's a good lesson for season two and the team that's going to take it up to learn from our mistakes and our shortcomings if there had been no pandemic, what do we think would be different about the podcast? Would we have been able to do this? Probably not. So that, that's I don't a good think question. it would exist. Yeah. But did that it would, would be a lot more had... localized? I think it could potentially have been a much more single institution centric. We simply wouldn't have had Lilith involved, I suppose, because <laughs> you um, I moved to Taiwan. We're Taiwan so um, yeah, it would have been a very, very different piece of work. I don't think the podcast would have existed without the pandemic. I'll, I'll go out and say it. I think that this came from not just us wanting to create a piece of accessible scholarship, but also that need to reach out. And if we weren't in a position where all of that was stripped away so quickly and almost kind of violently, I don't think that there would have been quite the answer or even the call to action made for this to happen. So this is another one of those weird moments and like it, it's very weird because this isn't the first time it's happened, but you know, whenever you experience something that is quite life-changing, that that really just rejigs your entire perspective. So there's there's this lovely phrase back where where I come from. It's we we love what the water gives, but we also respect what it takes. And I think that that's, that's part of it. The, in this case, the pandemic was, was the water. This, of course, comes from us having hurricanes all the time and one really big one. But it, it is that idea of understanding that sometimes this deeply tragic or traumatic thing is a wonderful period of growth. And I think that that's what we got to have, that, that almost cathartic experience of we've lost, but we're also being given so much at the same time. I think that's such a... A beautiful note to maybe close our conversation on today. Um, 
But I suppose before we finish up, some massive thanks are in order. So as a team, we'd really, we owe so much the Trinity Longroom Hub for their support of the public sphere. So we'd like to thank the hub and all of their staff there for everything they've done to support us. Thanks are also due to the community of early career researchers working at the hub, both um, the cohort from 2019 to 2020 and the 2020 to 21 cohort, who have been our biggest supporters. um, And we really appreciate that. Thank you. I personally would like to thank my fellow podcast makers. You guys have been a dream to work with. So thank you. But ultimately, thank you to you, listener, who have lent your time and ears to our podcast. We would be nothing without you and we so appreciate it. Welcome to the Hublic Sphere.